How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Buddy's House of Horror Podcast. And today, we're going to be reviewing every film that I saw in 2021, at least the first part of it. This is going to be a multi-part series as we round out all of the films that I saw in 2021 on the spooky side of the spectrum. I hope that you guys enjoyed the episode and we're just going to get right to it. But first, if you guys haven't already, please make sure if you're listening over on YouTube that you subscribe to my channel and turn on notifications so you don't miss when I put out a new episode. And if you're listening over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, make sure you subscribe over there as well. And if it lets you leave a rating and review, make sure you go ahead and do that. It really helps the show out a lot, helps it bring some more awareness to people that maybe have not heard of the show. It puts it out there a little more, of course, share the show with your friends, family, just anyone who is a lover of spooky stuff. Hit me up. And again, we're just going to get right to the show, so now let's get spooky. Alright, we're rolling sound here on the show. Welcome to another episode of Buddy's House of Horror Podcast. It is a beautiful fall day. Um, I love it. The leaves are falling on the ground. I cut my grass, hopefully for the last time of the year. Um, Hopefully it stops growing so much, um, so I don't have to worry about the yard work, because fall is in full effect. As I said, the leaves are falling. Um, I'm drinking pumpkin spice coffee all the time. We have this... It's at the house. It's not pumpkin spice coffee, but we have like this little pumpkin... Uh, cinnamon roll syrup that we've been using in our coffee. It just tastes so heavenly, so comforting. Um, it just feels like a warm blanket wrapped around you when you drink it. And I'm just really enjoying the fall time as I do every single year. And of course, this is a new year. This is 2021. Um, last year on the House of Horror, we obviously did my podcast where I talked about every single horror film that I saw in 2020. And of course, earlier this month on the House of Horror podcast, I rounded out the year um, because we still had to talk about the films I saw in October, November, and December. So now we're going to be done. Um, jumping, not dumping, for some reason I almost said dumping, we're not taking a dump, we're taking a jump into 2021, and of course we're going to be talking about every single horror film that I saw in 2021. This is probably going to be two parts as well, because of course I can only talk about the films that I've seen up until this point, and maybe, depending on how long this goes, I may need to cut it off at a certain month, um, so it's more like half and half, maybe I'll cut it off in the summer. Uh, but we'll we'll see. We'll see where the conversation takes us. We'll see what our length is and where I should cut it off. But you can for sure expect another episode of this, a part two, if you will, that rounds out the year. Uh, maybe in like January. Maybe I'll do it a little bit earlier this year instead of waiting until the following October to talk about it. But you never know. Um, but as of right now, we're going to be talking about every single horror film that I have seen in 2021 up until a certain point, up until we decide to cut it off and do the part two. So if you remember in the 2020 episode, the last film that I saw of the year was House of Frankenstein from 1944, and that was the last film that I watched in 2020 that was a horror film. Um, of course, that was on December 22nd, so it was almost Christmas when I watched that. So I watched a couple Christmas films to round out the year, and I watched that very bizarre Death to 2020 Netflix special um, right at the end of the year, and Soul, the Disney film, um, which is a very good film. It does have some weird plot um, holes in it, I would say. I don't know if I'm sure at this point people have explained the way of the plot holes on like YouTube videos and stuff like that. But it's a it's a nearly flawless film. It does have a few like weird things in it that don't make a whole lot of sense. Um definitely not a horror film. It does deal with death and stuff like that. So I'm just bringing it up pretty quickly along with Death to 2020, which was a very very bizarre documentary mockumentary type of thing. Um, which was good to watch once, but it's definitely something I'll never even consider watching again. <laughs> oh, God. So, in January of 2021, this was still during the months where Jared and I were discussing Arnold Schwarzenegger films and getting into our Stallone month. So, there wasn't too much horror watching going on during in January, but there were a few films. I think I watched three films looking at the list here of stuff that I watched in January. The first one being on January 16th, I watched The Fog from 1980, of course, directed by the illustrious John Carpenter. 
Lock your doors, bolt your windows, there's something in the fog. Strange things begin to occur as a tiny California coastal town prepares to commemorate its centenary... Whatever a centenary is, for some reason, I can't remember what that is. Oh, the centenary, okay, I get, I get, I get it. For some reason, when I, when, do you ever, like, read words on a piece of paper, and you're like, is that word right, is that spelled correctly? Especially when, like, you write something. Like, if you're writing something by hand, do you ever just look at it and just be like, that does not look like the way it's spelled? Because that happens to me all the time when I'm reading, writing anything, even when it's not um, written by me. Um, but anyway, inanimate objects spring eerily to life, Reverend Malone stumbles upon a dark secret about the town's founding. Radio announcer Stevie witnesses a mystical fire, and hitchhiker Elizabeth discovers the mutilated corpse of a fisherman. Then a mysterious fog descends upon the village, and more people start to die. This is a very, very iconic film. Um, of course, this was during John Carpenter's heyday. Of course, he just did Halloween. He was about to do, um, The Thing, um, the remake of A Thing of Another World. Um, of course, this has Jamie Lee Curtis in it, and I believe it also has Tom Atkins in it, if I am remembering correctly, or maybe that's territory. No, Tom Atkins is in this one. Um, and his character name is Nick Castle, <laughs> um, which, of course, is a reference to Nick Castle. Um, but anyway... Um, this was a good film. Um, I gave it four stars on Letterboxd as an undisputed classic. Again, it's not in the major, major territory of horror films in the 80s, of course. Um, it's more like a secondary classic. Um, but it's definitely one if you're a fan of John Carpenter, if you're a fan of Jamie Lee Curtis, and you want to see more of how they started out. This is definitely one that I think you guys should consider watching. Um, I believe I, it was streaming on Amazon Prime at the time. That's when I watched it. I'm not sure if it's still streaming anywhere. Um, but I'm sure you can find it. It's not, like, relatively, um, it's not overly obscure or anything. I mean, it's available that you can stream it, get it on DVD or Blu-ray for pretty cheap, probably. Um, the next film I watched was Underworld from 2003. I watched this with Midnight Miles. We had discussed watching all of the Underworld films, but for some reason we only watched that first one. I mean, we still have plans to watch the rest of them, but we were going to watch all of them like within a couple weeks of each other, and we never really got around to it. But we did watch the first Underworld, um, an immortal battle for supremacy. Vampires and werewolves have waged a nocturnal war against each other for centuries. And if you remember in my last podcast when I was talking about House of Frankenstein, I sort of explained a little bit that... That mythology is not really something that had been in the mythology in real life, passed down from generation upon generation. It more came from the films. It came from the Universal films, and of course, we see vampires and werewolves fighting all the time now, like with Twilight, with Underworld, um, with all these kinds of films. So, it really became popularized in the movies, and then the comic books adapted it, films adapted it, TV shows, and now it's just sort of commonplace that vampires and werewolves are enemies. Um, but, as I stated in that episode, and I mean, you can look into it yourself online, I don't have the full things in front of me, but that wasn't really, really something that was well-known within the mythology. I mean, I'm sure there's some mythologies out there where they were against each other, but it certainly wasn't in the big, major, like, mainstream stories that everyone knows about. Um, but Underworld... All bets are off when a female vampire warrior named Celine, who's famous for her strength in werewolf hunting prowess, becomes smitten with a peace-loving male werewolf, Michael, who wants to end the war. And of course, in this, they're called Lycans, the werewolves, and it's the vampires versus the Lycans. Um, this is a very good action film. It's very, very much a product of its own time, 2003. Um, of course, around this time, we're getting like the Blade films and like these gothic... Um, comic adaptations, and Underworld's a great one. It fits right in with the mix. Um, I'm not sure why we didn't really decide to go and just watch all of them right then. Um, I did give the first one three stars. Um, this was only my second time seeing the film. I had seen it for the first time in college, in my vampire class, actually. Um, we were doing a whole lecture on vampires taking a superhero turn like with Blade and Angel and, of course, Celine, um, all going on around this time period. Um, so it's a very distinct... It's one of the last big movements in vampire 
um, history um, was the early 2000s when the vampires took another turn with their character arc. Of course, like Nosferatu brings about the plague, then you start seeing Dracula um, as Bela Lugosi, um, with people afraid of foreigners and stuff like that, and it evolves further on into the um, 50s and 60s, um, when you're getting Christopher Lee really bringing the size and power to the role. Um, and again, The Fear of Foreigners, there's a film, I think it's called The Return of Dracula, where Dracula, he is pretending he's a cousin from a far-off country and stuff like that. And then, of course, you get Barnabas Collins, who really splits the timeline of vampires and stuff like that, where you have the mean, nasty vampires and the sympathetic ones, which leads to Interview with a Vampire, and on the nasty ones, leaves with Salem's Lot. And, of course, you're just getting all these different things in the 80s, like... People were afraid of divorce. The divorce rate was very high in the 80s. So in the 80s, you're getting all of these... Well, I guess the major one is Fright Night, right? Where the vampire could be your stepdad. He could be going and taking your mom out on dates. So that was the fear at the time. Um, And then in the early 2000s, they took another turn. um, Sort of like a redemption. Because after Bram Stoker's Dracula in the early 90s, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, where Dracula receives redemption at the end, it moves on where now the vampires are the heroes. Um, And that's where we get Angel, Blade, um, and that kind of stuff. So that's where Underworld kind of fits in, and then of course after that we get into Twilight and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, that was a nice little mini vampire tangent that I didn't mean to go on, but for some reason, you know, these just things, they sort of happen. Um, The next film that I saw was Misery, and this is a film that I had seen a lot when I was a kid for some reason. For some reason, I don't know, I I feel like I watched this film for the first time on TV at my grandma's house. I don't know why she was watching it on TV, because my grandma was not really into horror films to my knowledge, Um, but for some reason I remember distinctly the first time I watched this film, I was at her house, it was just me and her, like, I don't know what was going on, maybe it was on Halloween, because I used to go over there, um, when I was a preteen, early teenage years, I used to go over there and help her pass out candy, um, I'm just trying to think of a situation where it would have just been the two of us there, so I'm thinking that might have been the case, um, And for some, yeah, this was on TV. I mean, it makes sense. It was Halloween. Um, Of course, Misery, written by Stephen King's, um, the novel. Um, And Rob Reiner was the director, of course. Um, Paul Sheldon used to write for a living. Now he's writing to stay alive. Novelist Paul Sheldon crashes his car on a snowy Colorado road. He is found by Annie Wilkes, of course, played by Kathy Bates in probably her best role. Um, who is the number one fan of Paul's heroine, Misery. Annie is also somewhat unstable, and Paul finds himself crippled, drugged, and at her mercy. This is a very iconic film, very iconic novel. Um, I guess it was sort of cathartic for Stephen King, because, I mean, like, I guess as a writer or as a filmmaker or anything, an actor, um, you can get some weird stalkerish-type fans out there. So I think he was sort of... I don't know the full backstory of when he was writing this, but I feel like he was putting himself in the shoes of this writer um, who's basically held captive by this obsessed fan. She breaks his leg, and then, of course, he's writing the new Misery story. She doesn't like it. She forces him to rewrite the whole thing because he kills Misery at the end to sort of um, end the story. She wants him back, and then the whole film is just James Caan's character, um, Paul, and I love James Conn. of course he was in The Godfather, he's an elf, he's a very talented actor, um, it's him trying to stay alive and trying to escape this obsessed fan, um, it's a really great film, it's definitely a, this one is a horror essential, um, especially of the 90s, this is probably one of the best horror films to come out in the 90s, one of the best Stephen King adaptations, it's definitely one of my favorites, I give it a four star, it's not one that I have a super emotional connection to, um, which keeps it from being like a four and a half, or something like that, sorry, my voice is uh, going again, here's the thing, when you do a podcast with someone, you always have breaks to like breathe, but when I'm doing these by myself, I feel like if I take too long of a breath, it's just dead air, and I'm not going to go and try to cut out all of these things, so I just try to keep talking, so sometimes my voice gets a little harsh, Um, I'm going to try to get better at that, I'm going to take a sip of water briefly, 
stay hydrated, folks. And yeah, but Misery, I forget what I was saying about it, but yeah, I guess I was explaining my rating scale a little bit. So, obviously, one half a star, one star, one and a half means the film sucks. It's bad. Um, two stars means uh, the film it has a lot of problems. It's not very good, but it's not the worst thing ever. Two and a half to three is it's a good film. Um, two and a half means I probably won't watch it again. Three means I would consider watching it again. Three and a half means the film is very, very good. Four stars means the film is a very good film. It's close to perfect, um, but it lacks sort of that emotional connection that I have. Um, and four and a half and five are obviously for films that are even complete masterpieces. Like, there's absolutely nothing you can fix about it, and I have to have some sort of emotional tie to it um, for it to get a five star. Um, and that rounds out January. So it was, yeah, it was only those three films in January that I watched that were horror films. The rest were Stallone movies. I watched Lone Wolf and Cub, um, the first film. Um, I watched all the Austin Powers during this time as well. My wife and I were on an Austin Powers kick for some reason. We just decided three nights in a row we're going to block out the time and watch the three Austin Powers films. Um, sometimes you just got to do that. Keep your marriage happy and healthy. Um, so there's some marriage advice for all you guys. Watch the Austin Powers films, at least the first two. You can skip Goldmember. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. Getting into February, the shortest month of the year, um, I, but I did watch about the same amount of horror films in this month. Maybe, oh, it looks like I watched one more horror film in February than I did in January. Um, but two of them are actually, um, films that I talked about last year and stuff that you may or may not have heard already on the channel. I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing this on the show this year or if I'm going to be delaying it for the 50th anniversary coming up very soon. Um, at the beginning of the year next year. Um, but the first film that I watched in February was The Night Stalker. Of course, starring Darren McGavin, directed by John Moxie, written by Richard Matheson, adapted by, uh, adapted from the novel by Jeff Rice, and produced by Dan Curtis from 1972. One of my favorite films that I've discovered in recent years, um... But again, I'm probably going to be talking about it again on another show, whether or not you've heard it already or going to hear it. This is one I'm going to be dedicating an entire video to, um, so I'm not going to go too deep on it. But I guess I guess I will read the letterboxed description, because I haven't read the letterboxed description of this before. As with any of these, I haven't read these letterboxed descriptions. I'm reading them for the first time with you guys. Um, so, <clears throat> here we go. Wise-cracking reporter Kara Kolshak investigates a string of gruesome murders in Las Vegas. It seems that each victim has been bitten in the neck and drained of all their blood. Kolshak is sure that it's a vampire. He's hot on the trail, but nobody believes him. His editor thinks he's nuts, and the police think he's a head case. He's a, he thinks he's a hind rance? Oh, a hindrance. See, that's what I mean. I'm doing the thing again where I'm like, what is this word? It doesn't make any sense to me. People, the police think he's a hindrance in the investigation, so Kolshak takes matters into his own hands. And yes, he does. Um, this is a film that is an easy four and a half stars, mainly because I really like the film. I have that emotional connection to it now because of the first time I saw it, for some reason I fell in love with this Kolshak character. Um, and of course, you fall down a whole rabbit hole where you find all the other Kolshak related content out there. But this was the first film, of course, it was adapted from the unpublished novel by Jeff Rice. Of course, it was published after the fact. Um, but at the time, it was an unpublished novel. And everything in the film just works, man. Um, and I'm just going to move on to the next film. Because, again, I'm going to be talking about this at some point on the show. And the next film ties right into it. Because the next film I watched was the sequel to that film from the very next year, 1973, The Night Strangler. Um, also had the starring Darren McGavin, also now directing by Dan Curtis, who went from producing to director. Um, and yeah, so this one was the, I believe the novel and the script for this one were being written at the same time. Um, so they could come out in book form around the same time, but this one wasn't really based off of an existing work. Um, actually, I think maybe Jeff Rice may have adapted his novel from the film 
Um, I'm not too sure on the details. I'm going to have to look up those details when I do that show. So don't quote me on any of that. But The Night Strangler is the sequel to The Night Stalker. This time, instead of taking place um, in Las Vegas, this one moves it to Seattle. Um, and yeah, I'll just read the description here. But again, I'm not going to go too deep into these because I'm going to be doing full episodes about these. So... After being run out of Las Vegas, Kolshak heads for Seattle in another reporting job with his local paper. It's not long before he's on the trail of another string of bizarre murders. It seems that every 21 years for the past century, a killer kills a certain number of people, drains them of their blood, and then disappears into the night. Kolshak is on his trail, but can he stop him? So this one, it does fall into the category where it tries to do the same thing that the first one did. Um, there are a few differences, mainly with who is doing the killings, of course, on um, the type of creature that he is. Um, but for the most part, it checks all the same boxes as the first one. Only in this one, I guess the biggest like difference in character is at the beginning of the Night Stalker, he's not someone who always thinks that it's supernatural stuff. He sort of is discovering this, and then when vampire is the only option, he's like, it must be a vampire. So he didn't go into it as like a crazy conspiracy theorist or something like that. With the Night Strangler, he's already aware that supernatural stuff just exists in his universe. So I guess his character is a little bit different in the second one because he's already aware of stuff that's going on. If you do check out this film, I do recommend watching the full version, not the version that was on TV. Um, the full version has a scene with Al Lewis, of course, Grandpa Munster, that was cut. Um, and it has the, the actress who played on um, the Wicked Witch of the West. Her name is escaping me at the moment, but I guess if I scroll down, I can find it. Margaret Hamilton. She plays a character in this as well. Her version from the TV version wasn't cut completely, I don't believe, but it was definitely reduced a lot. Um, but I like both films. Uh, the Night Stalker, the first one, is obviously the better of the two. Um, I gave The Night Strangler only fo four stars as opposed to four and a half, but it's still a great, great film. Um, enjoy it a lot. Um, the last horror film that I watched during February was Interview with the Vampire. I watched this with my wife. This was probably my third or fourth time watching the film total. Um, and something about Interview with the Vampire is that it feels like a three-hour movie. It feels so long when you're watching it, but it's only an hour and 23 minutes. One, two, three. Um, but for some reason, when you're watching it, it feels like an all-night affair. Um, it's not like some movie you can just put on and it's over quickly. It feels like a long time. Like, you feel every single 123 of those minutes. Um, which is not a bad thing. It's a very good, immersive film. But it's just, it's not one that really, like, breezes through. You sort of need to set aside a night to watch it. You need your full night to watch it. At least that's how it feels. Drink from me and live forever. A vampire relates his epic life story of love, betrayal, and loneliness and dark hunger, dark hunger to an over-curious reporter. Of course, this film is starring Brad Pitt as Louie and Tom Cruise as Lestat um, in the classic story from Anne Rice. One of the great Rice writers from the 70s, of course, we already talked about Jeff Rice. No relation to Anne Rice other than name only, um, but it's just ironic um, that there's the two, two people named Rice wrote very prolific vampire stories in the 70s. Um, we also have Kirsten Dunst as Claudia, Antonio Banderas as Armand, Armand, um, and yeah, this is a really great film. I don't think I need to go too in-depth about Interview with the Vampire. I feel like everyone sort of knows it. Brad Pitt's character is telling the story of his life, about how he was turned into a vampire. Um, some stuff goes on through his life. I don't want to give away the full film if you haven't seen it. Um, there's definitely, a, after watching all the Twilight films last year and then revisiting Interview with the Vampire, there is a lot of influence projected onto Twilight from this. Um, especially with stuff like the Volturi, um, and just sort of some of the characters in this, Antonio Banderas, Banderas's character and, um, his people, um, have a big influence, I feel, in Twilight. Um, same with Louis and Lestat, there's, there's a lot going on, of course, I mentioned in my little vampire rant at the beginning of the show, um, this was where, after Barnabas Collins, the vampire lore took a shift, 
where you had like the sympathetic vampires and the nasty vampires. And this you actually get both. I mean, Louis is very, very sympathetic. He doesn't want to kill people, so he's surviving off of animal blood. And then you have Lestat, who's just a dirty bastard. Um, but it's a very, very, very great film. It's a period piece. Um, of course, it's intercut with sort of modern day because he's retelling his story of his life. Um, they never made any more films directly after this with the same cast. Um, of course, they did, like, Queen of the Damned with Aaliyah and stuff like that. Um, but as far as, like, getting a film of, like, The Vampire Lestat, which is the next book with Tom Cruise in it, that never happened. And it feels like that was their plan all along because it's called The Vampire Chronicles Interview with the Vampire. Um, and The Vampire Chronicles is the novels. That's the series of novels. So it made it seem like this was going to be a series of film. Um, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because they didn't get the money back that they wanted or Tom Cruise wasn't on board, but we never got that second film with Tom Cruise as Lestat. Um, there's still time. I mean, they could still do it. I mean, I don't know, but regardless the film, it's a standalone film now, basically. Um, very, very good, very artsy. There are some cringy moments, I will say that, just due to the subject matter, um, with the romantic stuff. Um, but th yeah, there's some cringy elements, so there may be a little trigger warning involved with Interview with the Vampire. Um, but it is a good film, it's a very historic film, it's another one that we studied in the Vampire class. And that is rounding out February. So, we're going to be moving on to March, and some of these films that I watched in March, you're going to find when I'm talking about them, there are a lot of horror sequels, because at the time of this, I was preparing for the Top 10 Horror Sequels podcast that was the season finale of the House of Horror last year. So, if you guys haven't gone and checked out that series of podcasts, it was a two-parter, we ended up talking for like four hours straight, so I absolutely had to split it up into two episodes. Um, definitely go check that one out, um, and this is when I was watching a lot of the films for that list in order to prepare, at least ones that I needed to become a little bit more familiar with. Of course, I knew Evil Dead 2, I wasn't going to have to rewatch that one, I was very familiar with it, but some of the other films I included in my list, I wanted to rewatch because I just wanted to be more familiar with them, and some of them I was watching for the first time. Um, some of them may or may not have made my sequels list. I'm not going to spoil my entire list for you guys, but these may be among some of the ones on my list, because these were among the films that I was watching. So we're going to start off with the first film that I watched in March that was a horror film, which was on March 5th, and it was Day of the Dead. Directed by George A. Romero, of course, the third film in his Dead films. Of course, you had Night of the Living Dead first, then Dawn of the Dead, and then third, we have Day of the Dead. Um, each of these films were made about ten years apart. Um, they were all in different decades. One, of course, in the 60s, 70s. This one was from 1985. Um, the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Trapped in a missile silo, a small team of scientists, civilians, and trigger-happy soldiers battle desperately to ensure the survival of the human race. However, the tension inside the base is reaching a breaking point, and the zombies are gathering outside. This is perhaps the darkest of the dead films, ironically, even though it's called Day of the Dead. Um, a lot of it takes underground in that military base, as you said, as I said, as the person wrote, which I read, I said it though. And it just has some of the darkest characters imaginable. Um, General Rhodes, I believe his name is, is one of the best horror villains of the time. Um, not like a supernatural villain, but a great horror human villain. Not necessarily like an evil monster or something like that, but just like a human like asshole. That's basically, he is an asshole. He's the real monster. The humans in this film are the monsters. Um, I don't want to go too depth into this one because I would rather you go and watch and listen to my horror sequels podcast because, spoiler alert, this is one that made the list, obviously, because this film is very, very great. It has a great final girl. It has a great zombie in it um, who's starting to regain his humanity and intelligence a little bit. Um, it has a great doctor character who they call Dr. Frankenstein. Um, it has a great villain, as I said, Captain Rose, um, played by Joe Pilato. 
Um, and his death scene in this film is one of the best death scenes of all time in any zombie film. Um, he gets what's coming to him. Um, he definitely gets his comeuppance. And it is one of the best death scenes from a gore perspective, from a story perspective, um, from a character perspective. Because even as he's dying, he's talking shit. Um, it's not like he's saying, no, don't do that, don't do that. They're like tearing apart his organs and he's saying, choke on him. So he's even in death, he's being an asshole. Um, again, I love it. It is one of my favorite zombie films. It's hard to pick a favorite between Night of the Living Dead, Day of the Dead, and Dawn of the Dead. It's hard to pick which one of the three is the best. I flip-flop it on it all the time. In the horror sequels list, I went with Day of the Dead, simply because I knew Miles was going to put Dawn of the Dead, because that's his favorite film and obviously would make it his favorite horror sequel by default. So I was like, you know what, to be different, I'm going to do Day of the Dead, but I think Day of the Dead might actually be better than Dawn of the Dead. I don't know why. Again, I that might be one we need to watch back-to-back and do an in-depth discussion on it. Um, but yeah, that's Day of the Dead. Go check out my horror sequels podcast. Check out the film. Uh, rest in peace, George Romero, a true icon. Um, and yeah, very great zombie film. So go and watch it. Again, from 1985, Day of the Dead. I gave it three and a half. So coming up next, I actually just realized that I skipped one over in February. Clearly left a hell of an impression on me, um, just scrolling through my letterbox. Um, I didn't even, I just completely skipped over I Sell the Dead, which I watched in February. I thought I only watched those couple in February, but this one was actually sandwiched in between The Night Strangler and Interview with a Vampire, and for some reason I just missed it. So we're skipping back to February just for a brief moment here. This was on February 12th, and the tagline here is Never Trust a Corpse. 18th century justice catches up with a pair of grave robbers. With only a few hours to go before his date with the guillotine, Arthur Blake tells his life story to Father Francis Duffy. Before long, Arthur spills the beans on how he got started in the grim corpse-peddling business with seasoned ghoul Willie Grimes. So this film is a horror comedy from 2008, Um, most notably starring Ron Perlman as Father Duffy, um, as I previously mentioned. Um, this film, it's a very, very mixed bag. Um, I use the term horror comedy loosely because I find it's barely horror and barely a comedy. Um, this one was a tough watch, I'm not gonna lie. Um... And I watched this with Midnight Miles, the Midnight Jester Mandroid. And Miles likes to do this thing where he'll show up in the middle of the night with four or five of the worst films you've ever seen, asking which one you want to watch. And that night it happened to be I Sell the Dead. Um, it the, just, just nothing about this film worked. Um, I remember it had a few laughable moments, which is why I gave it two stars. Um, so it did have some moments where I was like, okay, this isn't the worst thing on the planet, but for the most part, most of the film is pretty bad. Um, bad special effects, bad acting, bad direction, pretty much bad everything all around. Um, I don't know, man. And then he fell asleep within, like, 25 minutes of the film, so I didn't even have anyone to go off of and, like, talk to about the film or this and that, because he was dead-ass asleep, and then I was just sort of trapped there. Um, watching the rest of the film. So that was an interesting evening. Nonetheless, Midnight Miles, as always, rolling out around midnight um, with some of the worst beer and some of the worst films that you've ever seen. (laughs) Oh, God, Miles. What a guy. Love him to death. What a guy. Um, So we're going to go back to March now. After Day of the Dead, the next film that I watched was actually The Addams Family from 2019. Not exactly a horror film, um, but spooky nonetheless, creepy and kooky, you know the song. Um, This one was from the 2019 version, as I said. This was the computer-generated CG one um, with Oscar Isaac and Charlize Theron. Um, Think your family is weird? The Addams Family's lives begin to unravel when they face off against a treacherous, greedy, crafty reality TV host while also preparing for their extended family to arrive for a major celebration. Um, So this one is an interesting film. I actually thought it was pretty good. 
um, for what it was. I went into it thinking it wasn't going to be anything great. Um, I like the animation style. Um, it's very similar to the original Adams Family comics, um, of course, written by Charles Adams. Um, I did a whole podcast about the Adams Family versus the Monsters, so if you want more information about the Adams Family and the Monsters, you can go ahead and check that one out. Um, and this was a good film. Of course, it has Finn from Stranger Things playing Pugsley. Um, Nick Kroll as Uncle Fester. Snoop Dogg is in the film as Cousin It. Um, and yeah, as I said, like the the Adams family that we know is just a small faction of the Adams family. There's tons of extended family. Um, and this shows the Adams family moving to their town. I think they actually meet Lurch at the beginning of the film. So it's sort of like a prequel to how the family sort of got their house and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, they're right next to this town, and the town is very, very much not goth, <laughs> like the Adams Family. Um, and it's just a nice, like, polar opposite sort of scenario, and as I said, the reality TV host is, like, coming into their home and wants to, like, renovate it and stuff like that. Um, it's a good film for kids. I don't think you necessarily need to be super aware of who the Adams Family are in order to enjoy the film. I think this gives a good introduction, um, if it's your, if it's your kid's first time watching it. Um, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it's nothing, like, insane. I don't think it should have won, like, Best Animated Picture of the Year or anything like that. Um, but it was a standard, good, fun film. I gave it three and a half. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. The next film I watched, actually, in the same day, I watched three films in a row, um, I, I think I was off of work that day or something. I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna sit around all day and just watch TV. And after that, I did a double feature of Scream and Scream 2. And it had been a long time since I've seen the original Scream, but it was my first time ever watching Scream 2. Um, for some reason, it had eluded me for years. Um, but the first Scream, someone has taken their love of scary movies one step too far. A killer known as Ghostface begins killing off teenagers, and as the body count begins rising, one girl and her friends find themselves contemplating the rules of horror as they find themselves living in a real-life horror film. Um, so this one, obviously, is a very iconic film. I don't think I need to go too in-depth into the plot of Scream or my thoughts on Scream. Scream is obviously an easy, easy four to four and a half film. I gave it four and a half. Um, I love the way it pokes fun at the horror film. I mean, you have all the kids in the living room when they're talking about the horror tropes, like, don't say you'll be back because you won't be back, don't have sex, all that kind of stuff. And of course, um, the killers, spoiler alert, are just normal people. It's not a supernatural sort of thing like a Michael Myers or whatever. It plays with the idea that anyone can be behind that mask. Um, and of course, that mask was a popular Halloween mask at the time. I mean, it, the, that mask was an existing mask before the film. So it just sort of added to the creepiness of it. Um, it wasn't like the mask was made for the film, like the Michael Myers mask, Friday the 13th, stuff like that. This was an existing Halloween mask, and they just decided to use it, and it brought breathe the whole new life into the Ghostface character. Of course, it has very iconic moments, um, great scenes, great lines, like in the video store. Of course, this is Wes Craven, who is poking fun at the slasher genre, which he helped create, basically. Um, Scream 2 actually came out the next year, um... And a lot of people say Scream 2 is better than the first one. And the reason I watched Scream 2 was because I considered putting it on my horror sequels list, but I had never seen it. So I was like, all right, I need to check this one out because everyone says it's one of the greatest horror sequels ever. And I did not think it was as good as the original. In fact, I didn't think it was really anywhere close to being as good as the original. Also directed by Wes Craven, um, someone has taken their love of sequels one step too far. Two years after the terrifying events that occurred in uh, Woodsboro, Sydney is now attending... Oh, I'm sorry, I just started... I just blew through it as if Woodsboro, Sydney was a town in a state <laughs> that occurred in Woodsboro. Sydney, the character, is now attending Windsor College in Cincinnati, and Gail Weathers' best-selling book on Sydney's life has now made its way into a major motion picture. When two college students are killed in a theater while watching the new film Stab, 
Sydney knows deep down that history is repeating itself. Again, playing with the idea that anyone can be behind the ghost face mask. Um, and this one, it does have a different vibe from the original, but it's still close enough where it ties in. Because, I mean, one is high school kids, this is college kids, it's the next logical step. Um, I just didn't think that it was anywhere near as good as the original. Um, I think that it's very overrated as a sequel. I gave it only two stars. Um, did not think it was very good. I mean, it's fine. I'm glad I saw it. Um, but I don't know if I'm going to be re revisiting Scream 2 anytime in the future unless I'm doing another video about it or something like that. Um, still haven't seen any of the other Scream sequels. Looking forward to the new one. I am going to have to watch 3 and 4 in preparation for the new one. Um, but yeah, as of right now, I've only seen the first two, and those were both this March. Rewatching the first one after many, many years, and then watching the second one for the first time. The first one, man, is just so iconic. I mean, you have the opening scene where it's on the phone, it's what's your scary favorite scary movie, um, stuff like that. The first Scream is just great. Um, one of the greatest, um, horror films of all time, um, in my opinion. Definitely one of the best slashers. Um, it's one of the best horror comedies, I would say. Um, for sure. Um, next up, just briefly mentioning A.W. Revolution was around this time. Not a horror film, but it was horrible. <laughs> With the, uh, the barbed wire exploding deathmatch or whatever the fuck that was. Holy shit. Um, the next one I watched was Psycho 2. Um, directed by Richard Franklin. This is from 1983. And this is film, this is a film that I had watched a very, very long time ago. And was rewatching again for the first time, just like... Um, with Scream, um, and you just hear that title, Psycho 2, and you just think to yourself, this has to be bad. Like, there's no way that this is a good film. But let's just read the description here, and then I will get right into the discussion about it. It's 22 years later, and Norman Bates is finally coming home. It's almost, wait, it's almost like they waited for Alfred Hitchcock to die to make this. After years of treatment at a mental institution for the criminally, criminally insane, serial killer Norman Bates is finally released, deciding to move back into his long-dead mother's infinite, infamous old house. He soon finds himself tormented by her demands and begins to question his own sanity. Of course, we have Anthony Perkins back as Norman Bates. Um, we have Meg Tilly starring as sort of the romantic lead Mary, um, and some other characters along the way. Um, this film, as I said, it's easily easy to discredit it because it is called Psycho 2. But I'm telling you guys, you gotta check this one out. Psycho 2 was four stars. It was a great slasher film. This came out, as I said, in the early 80s, right as the slasher genre was in full effect. And why not bring back one of the first slasher films back with a sequel? Um, I can think of plenty of reasons why not, and you know what? It's a miracle that this film was good, it was competent. Um, a lot of it has to do with Anthony Perkins, but it also is just a good story about someone who was in a mental institution trying to readjust with society and his trauma, and I talked about this in the Horror Sequels podcast, so I'm not going to go in-depth with it. Um, because I'd rather you just listen to that episode, because we have a lot more to go through on this one. We're only in March, and I think I've been going, I haven't been keeping track of the time, but I would have to guess it's been about 45 minutes now. Maybe a little longer, maybe a little less, but 45 feels like a good time frame that I'm at right now. Um, I should really start starting these podcasts, like, on a time. Like, if I start recording at 9 o'clock, I'll know how long I've been going and stuff like that. Um, but I have no idea when I, when I started, I have no idea how long I've been going. I just know it's only March, and we've got a long way to go. This is probably gonna be multiple parts, instead of just one now and then one at the end of the year. This is probably gonna be several episodes at this rate. Um, so we're just gonna keep plowing through. The next one I watched was Saw 2. Um, I think you're noticing a trend here. I'm watching a lot of sequels. Um, obviously, I said I was preparing for the horror sequels podcast around this time in March. Um, so that's when I was watching all these because that's when we recorded the episode. I believe it was in March or April. Um, this was a course from 2005. 
Um, the follow-up to the original Saw, which people say started the horror porn, uh, torture porn genre, um, at least making it popular. Um, but the first Saw wasn't really like that. The second Saw is really the one they're referring to when it's more like the torture stuff. Um, the tagline, in fact, is, oh yes, there will be blood. When a new murder victim is discovered with all the signs of Jigsaw's hand, Detective Eric Matthews begins a full investigation and apprehends Jigsaw with little effort. But, for Jigsaw, getting caught is just another part of his plan. Eight more of his victims are already fighting for their lives, and now it's time for Matthews to join in the game. Um, this, I think, it's hard to say, um, but I chose this as the best Saw sequel. Um, there are other ones that I like. There are some that are very, very bad. I need to go back and rewatch most of them. Um, but Saw 2, I really like a lot. Again, this is the one when people are talking about Saw. This is normally the one that they're talking about. Um, and again, I go in depth on this on another episode of the show. Um, but Saw 2 is really good. I think it's the first one that I saw as well. I don't think that has anything to do with the fact that it's my favorite. Um, but it was the first one that I saw. Um, the first Saw that I saw. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to go in depth on it because I already went on depth in it before, just like a lot of these. I'm going to try to breeze through some of these uh, horror sequels ones um, just because I already talked about them on another show. Um, the next one, of course, Hellraiser, Hellbound. Um, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, I should say. Directed by Tony Randall in 1988. Uh, Miles tells the story the best on that horror sequels podcast when he was talking about it on his list. Um, I guess he was in a film symposium or whatever. They were, like, showing films or whatever and having discussions. And the professor just went up on the stage. He would normally do, like, an introduction to the film, maybe a couple minutes, five minutes, whatever, just, like, to introduce the film or whatever. Literally just goes up on the stage and says, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is better than the first one, and that's a fact. And then just walks off the stage. Legend. Um, and he is absolutely correct. I enjoy this one a lot better than the original Hellraiser. Time to play. Um, I'm not going to go into the plot of this one. We talk about it a lot in the horror sequels one. Um, because, spoiler alert, it was in both of our lists. Um, but Hellbound Hellraiser 2, I remember it's a lot more disturbing. There, of course, is the scene where... The girl has no skin, or maybe it's a guy, I can't, it's escaping me at the moment, but basically the person is just a bunch of muscles and bones crawling on the ground. Of course, you have the scene where the doctor becomes a Cenobite. Um, the film is just iconic, and I think the reason I like it a lot more than the original Hellraiser is because we're in the Cenobite's realm for the majority of the film. Um, so it's very cool to see, it's very artsy, cinematic, stuff like that. Um, and it just all around, it's a more enjoyable film to me than the first one. Um, the first one is a classic, no doubt about it. I gave Hellraiser Hellbound three and a half. I think I have the original one at three. So it is better, but it's not, like, astronomically better. I just think Hellbound is the better of the two films. Haven't seen any of the other Hellraiser sequels. I don't know if I should or not. If you've seen any Hellraiser films, and which one is your favorite? I want to know. So here's my prompt if you guys have been listening to the podcast this long and you want to let me know that you've listened to it this long, let me know what the best Hellraiser sequel is besides Hellbound. Besides the first sequel, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, what is the best out of the Hellraiser sequels? I need to know. Because maybe we'll do that on the podcast at a later date. Take a swig of the water, keep yourself hydrated. Um, if you guys haven't had any water, make sure you go ahead and drink some water right now. Um, if you're driving, listening to this, make sure you're paying attention on the road. Wow, Jesus Christ, what the fuck happened with my voice? Pay attention to the road if you're driving. Sorry, that was probably a horrible distraction if you were driving. I hope that everyone is safe out there. Um, if you're listening to this while you're doing the dishes, um, don't accidentally cut yourself with a knife. That's always a fucking, the worst thing ever when you're doing dishes. Um... Only thing worse than that, doing the dishes, accidentally cutting yourself, <clears throat> the only thing worse is accidentally touching all the nasty-ass, like, food that's, like, in the fucking drain at the bottom. Holy shit, that's terrible. I hate doing the dishes, bro. Next up, Exorcist 3. Gonna blow through that one pretty quick as well, but I will read... I actually am not gonna read the description. The description is very long, 
but we do talk about this in the horror sequels one as well. This was directed by William Peter Blatty, who of course was not the director of the original film, but the writer. Um, I think he was the writer of the original. I know he he might have written the book. Um, he might have written the book. I can't recall. Um, but William Peter Blatty um, only directed this and another film called The Ninth Configuration, apparently. It says on Letterboxd. Um, but yes, he wrote The Exorcist. He wrote The Exorcist 3. Um, he wrote some other things here and there. Um, and that's another one. Like, Exorcist 3, it's like, how could this be good? Um, and the film is a mixed bag. I'm not gonna lie. There's a lot of talking scenes in it. But the scenes that go hard go really hard. Um, there's great performances throughout. Of course, I love George C. Scott. I absolutely love Brad Dorif. Um, it's just a really great film, man. It's another one that I think people overlook just because it's a sequel of a really critically acclaimed, timeless film. Um, but Exorcist 3, give it its props. Um, Miles and I still need to watch the Exorcist prequel films. And of course, I've seen Exorcist 2 The Heretic a few times. Um, but I don't remember too much about it. Um, I remember the meme scenes. <laughs> like, I remember... George, um, no, what's his name? Uh, James Earl Jones. I remember James Earl Jones, um, and his iconic stuff. I remember the locusts. I remember, um, her actually in the original Exorcist makeup for a brief period. Um, that, this is the moment, of course, where it explains more of the Pazuzu stuff. But the second film is just weird, man. Um, it's one I'm definitely gonna have to watch at some point in the future. Um, next one is Annabelle Creation. Um, if you've listened to the Two Nerds podcast where we talk about The Conjuring, the devil made me do it to him, um, you know that I'm not the biggest fan of all of these films, but Annabelle Creation, out of all of the Conjuring Universe films, I think this one is probably the strongest. You don't know the real story. Several years after the tragic death of their little girl, a doll maker and his wife welcome a nun and several girls from a shuttered, shattered orphanage into their home, soon becoming the target of the doll maker's possessed creation, Annabelle. So this is where the Annabelle doll gets its creation, obviously. It's a prequel to the Annabelle film that was before this, the really terrible one, and it ties into it at the end, but for the most part, this is a period piece back when the doll was first constructed, and then the dolls, one of the first dolls killings that we see. Um, there might have been some in between the gaps, but this is the first one where we see what the doll has done. There's a lot of great scenes um, with the little girls telling ghost stories under the blankets. They hear noises. Um, and this film, what it has going for it is there's a lot of suspense in it. Um, like, everything in this film, like, introduced, there's a good payoff. Like, one of the girls um, has cerebral palsy, and she has to ride like one of those um, stair lifts where like you sit down and it brings you up the stairs and you're just waiting, okay, when is this going to come back? There's like a scarecrow in the barn and you're like, okay, when is the scarecrow going to come back? It's a good film of introducing things and then having a payoff. Um, I gave it three and a half stars, which for a modern day horror film is actually quite a lot for me to give something three and a half. Um, so I really enjoyed that one quite a bit. Um, the next one I watched, actually, we're going to talk about these next few, and these were all watched within, I was watching three to four films a day, because this is when, unfortunately, I had COVID, um, of course, right before I was scheduled to get the vaccine, of course, was still always wearing masks at work and all that good stuff, um, but some, I mean, this happens to the best of us, but yes, I got covid for my birthday, I was diagnosed like three days before my birthday, so I was trapped in my attic um, of the House of Horror, just watching films until I could come out of quarantine and see my wife. I couldn't see my wife for two weeks. She was downstairs. I was upstairs. Um, it was just a very bad time, but unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, I was able to watch a lot of films during this time. So that works. Um, the first one I watched um, while I was upstairs that was a horror film because I did watch 
um, the last Blockbuster up here, which is a documentary about the video store about Blockbuster. It's a very bizarrely made documentary. Um, I do recommend it. Um, but it, it, they made it real weird. Like they try to throw in like a bunch of jokes and like be trendy and stuff like that. I would have liked it better if it was just a straight up documentary. Um, but regardless, you get what you get, and that's what we got. Um, the first one I watched was In Search of Darkness Part 2. Um, so this is obviously the second installment of the In Search of Darkness documentary series, so now we have eight hours of In Search of Darkness. The third one is coming out, and I don't know, man, like, these documentaries are good, but they're so freaking expensive to order, so, I don't know, they may have priced me out of the third one, man. I think I might have had enough. Unless they want to do a special House of, Buddy's House of Horror edition of In Search of Darkness. Because the second one that I have, I actually watched the Cinemassacre edition. And that's what they do, they like having different editions. They have like an Elvira edition, they have a Corey Taylor one for the first one. Um, a Dead Meat one for the first one. Um, if they get a Buddy's House of Horror one... And they invite me to come on. I'll be back on board. Um, maybe I will get the, thir the third one. Because I think I'm going to have to do like a whole video or series of videos dissecting these. Because they are very good documentaries. But the problem is, is like there's so many horror films in the 80s. Sometimes they're only spending like two minutes on a film. Sometimes they'll go like five minutes, ten minutes. But sometimes they literally just mention the film, read what the plot is about, and then they move on to the next one. So, it's a lot of films, but there's not a lot of substance to some of them. My favorite, my favorite segments of the In Search of Darkness films are when they're actually not talking about a specific horror film in general. And they're talking about a subject of horror. Um, I'm going to see if I have my notes um, for the In Search of Darkness Part 2 um, at easy disposal, and I don't. So, basically, um, they have little segments in between the films where they talk about a specific subject of horror, and those are my favorites. When they're talking about, it's basically the bookends of every year. So they'll talk about 1980, then they'll do a segment about women in horror, or special effects, or the films of Tom Savini and like stuff like that. They'll do like little segments here and there of the films that they are talking about. And those are my favorite parts about it. Um, because it leaves, leads to more like unfiltered content. It, it's more conversational. As I said, it's not basically reading plot points about a film and maybe giving one or two behind the scenes facts and stuff like that. There's really a lot more room for better discussion. Um, and I really enjoy those better than I do the reviews, if you will, the little discussions about the films. I like it when they're talking more about a topic. Um, I think that these are going to be on Shudder. I think the first one's already on Shudder. I think that's a good place for these to sort of live. It probably would have been better off as like a series where they just do it year by year and it's 10 episodes, they talk about every single film in 1980, every single film in 1981 that they want to do, instead of making a bunch of these sequels and four-hour documentaries and stuff like that. Um, I, w I will read the tagline for you guys, the ultimate 80s horror retrospective just got bigger. In Search of Darkness Part 2 is a four-hour-plus sequel to the uh, award-winning nominated In Search of Darkness, adding 15 new interviews and 40-plus returning favorites for the biggest and most comprehensive 80s horror documentary cast ever assembled. Um, I think I... It's hard to say which one I enjoy better, the first one or the second one. I think I enjoy the second one better because there's a lot more of James Rolfe in it because they were doing the Cinemassacre Collector's Edition version. Um, and I like him a lot better than some of the guests they had in the first one. I'm a Cinemassacre guy. I'm not a Dead Meat guy. Um, I'm sure the dude from Dead Meat is a nice dude and everything. No shame on him. I'm not hating or anything. Just, it's not really for me. It's not the content that I enjoy. Um, I enjoy more of the Cinemassacre stuff. And I love James Rolfe. Obviously, he was the biggest inspiration for me starting a YouTube channel and the House of Horror and all that kind of stuff. Um, of course, I, t I ranked my top 10 Cinemassacre Monster Madness seasons um, a couple years back and stuff like that. Huge influence on me, um, and I like In Search of Darkness 2 better because he's in it a lot more. And of course, the bonus features on the 
uh, Cinemasker Edition has a documentary about him, and there's bonus features artwork with him. I got a poster of him. Um, and yeah, I just really like it. The next one I watched was Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. This was on the same day, actually. So on the same day, I watched In Search of Darkness Part 2, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, and the next film I'm going to talk about, Paranormal Activity 3. Um, oh, and I actually also watched Terror Train on this day. Holy crap, I watched a lot of shit that day. I must have woke up at like 7 a.m. and just watched a ton of films. Um, Dracula Has Risen to the Grave is a sequel to Horror of Dracula. It's a Hammer Dracula film with Christopher Lee. He lives, they die, Christopher Lee as the fanged undead. In the shadow of Castle Dracula, the Prince of Darkness is revived by blood trickling from the head wound of an unconscious priest attempting exorcism. And once more, fear and terror strikes Transylvania as the undead Prince of Darkness stalks the village to enslave victims and satisfy his evil thirst. This is my favorite out of the Dracula sequels, um, and I think the best part about it is the duality of characters in it. Your leads are a priest, Dracula, and an atheist. Um, and of course, how is Dracula... What are his weaknesses? How is he expelled? Um crosses, praying, all that good stuff. When your main character is an atheist and he doesn't believe in any of that shit, it makes things really complicated. In one, at one point, Dracula gets staked in this film, but because Paul, the character who is an atheist, was not praying at the time and his heart wasn't pure and like religious intentions and stuff, it does not kill Dracula and Dracula throws it back at him. Um, there's great scenes just talking about religion um, and stuff like that, and also it's just a really great story, Dracula of course is great in it, he talks very minimally, because Christopher Lee hated saying his lines, because they always thought they sucked, so when he does say a line, it lets you know Christopher Lee was on board, and it makes everything he says a lot more important, um, because he frankly does not talk that much. Um, again, I talked about this in another show, so go listen to that as well, because there's a lot more to go through. Same with this next one, Paranormal Activity 3. My favorite out of the Paranormal Activity films, it runs in the family. In 1988, an entity begins to terrorize young sisters Katie and Christy in this prequel to the Paranormal Activity series. Um, it takes place in the 80s, obviously, so there's a lot of 80s references. Um, and this film, I think, was just the most inventive. It had the best story. It had the best special effects involved. had some of the best characters involved in the Paranormal Activity franchise. So when you put all that together, you're basically going to get the best out of the series. Um, of course, you have everything shot on VHS, because that's what was people were using at the time. The main father character is a wedding videographer, and he has his his little sidekick or whatever. And, of course, the mom doesn't want people to film anything. There's conspiracies involved um, with the grandma. Um, and Toby, who we learn in the... I think it... No, it's not Toby. Is it Toby? Is it the same person as in The Shining? I think that's the guy's name, Toby, or whatever. It's fine. The, the demon has his origins with our um, characters who are in the part one and part two in this. Of course, the two sisters. Um, the ending is something that you're not gonna forget anytime soon. The ending is iconic. My favorite thing about the film is the fan camera. So basically, it's on like a rotating fan so it can get the whole room. And so a lot of good, suspenseful things are drawn out because of that. Um, like the camera's like panning to the left, nothing there, it'll pan to the right, and all of a sudden there's a sheet ghost there. And it's like, oh, is it a kid playing a prank? Or is there the demon under that? What's going on? And the way I saw this film was just the perfect way to watch Paranormal Activity 3. I was with my girlfriend at the time, and we were the only ones in the theater. And it was horrifying. You heard every single noise. It was in an old theater at the cinemas I used to work at. It was in the small one because it had already been out for a few weeks at that point. And we were watching one of the latest shows. It was summer. So they had the AC blasting. So all you heard was the AC unit turning on and turning off. 
Um, it was just a very immersive and spooky experience. Um, the next film I'm going to talk about, I didn't talk about in the horror sequels thing, Terror Train. The boys and girls of Sigma Phi, some will live, some will die. A masked killer targets six college kids responsible for a prank gone wrong three years earlier and who are currently throwing a large New Year's Eve costume party aboard a moving train. Um, this is probably the most terrifying train besides Mugen Train in Demon Slayer that I've ever seen. Um, frankly, this film is just alright. Um, it's a three and a half, it's a three, three star film, not three and a half, I apologize. If Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't in this film, why would we even be watching it, you might ask yourself. And I sort of agree with that. Um, if Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't in it, this film may be lost in the shuffle. Um, but I do think it does have good merits besides that. Um, there's some really weird humor in it as well. There's like a pap smear of the year joke in it. Um, it's very obscure, even though Jamie Lee is in it. And I think that's because it's the same year as some other classics. This was, of course, in 1980. And, of course, in 1980, you're getting The Shining. You're getting a lot of these critically acclaimed horror films. So this one so does sort of get lost. So it's sort of like a hidden gem. But if you do seek it out, just don't go in expecting something amazing. It's just okay. Um, I did enjoy it quite a bit. Um, but just go in managing your own expectations about Terror Train. And you know what? I think that's actually going to round out this episode, you guys. Um, I've been going for a while, and we still have a long way to go with some films. Um, so I'm going to hit you guys back with another episode going through the rest of the films that I watched in 2021. It's probably going to end up being two to three parts, maybe four parts, depending on how long it goes. Um, I think reading the descriptions of the films actually makes the episode fill out a little better and longer. Um, I remember in the original one when I did this, I was sort of like trying to figure out what to say, and I'm just breezing through stuff real, real fast, the one that I did last year. Um, so I think I think this is going to be at least two more parts because I'm going to have to do one more part to finish out the stuff up until the current period when I'm recording this. And then, of course, at the end of the year, I'm going to have to do another one um, finishing out the year for the rest of October, November, and December. Um, so it's going to be at least two more parts. It might be three more parts. Um, but regardless, this is the end for this episode, you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you stuck with me through to the end. Again, let me know. I forget what my prompt was. I think it's what's your favorite werewolf film or something like that. I forget what my prompt was. Um, but if you listen to the whole episode, you should remember... Um, and if not, tell me what your favorite werewolf film is. I know that was one either in this episode or last episode. Um, but again, this is going to round things out for this week, you guys. I Again, I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to see you again with another episode of the House of Horror. So as always, you guys, take care and stay spooky.